0: Coming up, your Brooklyn Nets fall in game one on the road to the Philadelphia 76ers. They had a clear plan of attack. They battled for three quarters, but unfortunately collapsed late. We break down the strategy, the bright shining star that is Mikhail Bridges, and a problem that could linger throughout the series, all coming up next.
1: You are Locked On Nets, your daily Brooklyn Nets podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.
0: Ah, yes, my friends, it is the Locked On Nets podcast right here on the Locked On Podcast Network. It's your team, the Brooklyn Nets, every single day. Over there, you're going to find Doug Norrie, owner-operator of DFSR, for all your daily fantasy sports rankings from DraftKings to FanDuel. He's got you covered. I'm Adam Armbrecht, breaking down the New York football giants on the One Giant Podcast and the playoff-bound New Jersey Devils on the Devils Puck Luck Podcast. We thank you for making us your first listen of the day, free on all those great platforms, and tell you Today's episode is brought to you by PrizePix. Did you know, my friends, that PrizePix has a first-time user receiving 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code LOCKEDON? That's PrizePicks.com promo code Locked On. and Doug... This is going to be interesting because we have to start with the Brooklyn Nets losing to the Philadelphia 76ers, the final 121-101. It gets away from Brooklyn late. There are a lot of positives to take away from this game. Mikhail Bridges, Cam Johnson, Nicholas Claxton. We will get to those. But at the top, it's the loss and the strategy, and I think what a lot of fans are going to visually be frustrated by, that lack of perimeter defense, which we will explain.
1: Yeah, look, we always knew this was going to be a really tough series. Philly's a really good team. Uh, This is a very specific matchup that is not put a lot in the Nets' favor. You know, a lot of times in these playoffs, you can look at all these individual teams and matchups, and a lot of times you can say, hey, you know, it's going to be rough here, but here this team might have an advantage. The the Nets – don't really have much of that in this case. Uh, They don't have the two best players in the series, probably depending on where you want to put McHale versus Harden at this point. So probably got to lean Harden. Um, So this is a really, this, we always knew this was going to be a very, very difficult matchup. I I think starting from that standpoint is really good to ground ourselves and our, (laughs) make sure we have a good anchor here (laughs) for where, what the rest of what we're going to talk about. It was, this is going to be tough. And, you know for the most part i think the nets strategically played out a lot of things that i think i thought they we thought they were going to do outcome wise it was rough to watch at times and yeah. it does beg the question of what happens the rest of these series it's these series are never as bad as what it looks like at its worst and never as good as what it looks like at its best and that's always hard to remember you know 20 minutes after a game ends but <laughs>
0: right. we'll talk
1: about all the different stuff but it is a disappointing outcome where we did think the nets maybe could the thought of maybe stealing a game in here in Philly had us a little geeked up a little, but that just didn't come to pass.
0: They may. We may look back once upon a time here and say we got a little out over our skis in building up to this series. But to your point, the, the key takeaway from this game was the strategy that the Brooklyn Nets chose to go with against Joel Embiid. And that was keeping him away from the basket, double teaming him out on the perimeter and trying to force anybody else, including perimeter shooters, to beat them. I, you know, you can look at the box score and Joel Embiid is always going to get his, but I actually agree with it. And I think that the Brooklyn Nets survived on that strategy. The hard part is, and pr- frankly, the, the final numbers here don't do justice how hot Philadelphia shot from the outside it ends up being 48%, which is high, but 21 of 43. At one point, they were over 60% from beyond the arc. And that was brutal, but they had a clear plan in mind. Do you agree? that it was the right strategy because you need to kind of separate yourself from results because that can be damning, especially after a 20 point loss.
1: Yeah, I, I do think this was the correct strategy. It's hard to say that when you lose by 20, I'm fully aware of this, um, that it's very difficult to stand on the, on the shoulders of a strategy that just lost by again, 20 points. Uh, but it was very clear from the beginning that the operating procedure and the, for the nets was going to be, Joel Embiid gets doubled every time he touches the ball. It does not matter where it is. We cannot get caught in the pick-and-roll switches with him where he's just going to walk somebody down into, uh, down into the dunker and dunk over them. Mm-hmm. And what we saw all game was the Nets trying to take away parts of the game for Embiid that are so lethal. He has, two, he has many parts of his game that are lethal. One is getting a smaller or weaker defender up near the top of the key and just kind of barreling downhill against that guy. <laughs> yeah. Getting getting a, a a pick and roll with Harden where he gets into a really advantageous switch that he can get the guy down into the block on or just being able to operate from the nail where he's like unbelievably efficient like if you could think about little one-legged joel embiid step back from the free throw line which is like freaking automatic that none of that really happened here like the nets were fully committed to a double Basically every time like help defend, help defense came in the form of DFS. It came in the form of McHale. Like they brought doubles. I mean, kind of every time he touched the ball and that, that, that is going to have down chain effects, which we're going to talk about. But from that strategic standpoint, I think that that was probably correct. I maybe would have switched a couple things here and like who the first initial defender was. Um, sure. Maybe they do that next game. Um, But in terms of doubling Embiid and allowing everyone else to kind of see what happens, I, I think on a high level, I agree with that strategy, at least to come out and try it to begin with.
0: Yeah. And I think, listen, it's going to get skewed a little bit because the game gets away late, but over 33 minutes. So if needed, obviously, Embiid could have played more. 7 of 15, 104 from beyond the arc, got to the line 11 times, was perfect there. 26 points. You know, In, in the world where Joel Embiid can go for 40 plus on you, if you allow him that access in and around the basket, all the things that you highlighted there. Yeah. Like, I'll, we always talk about this, even in in-season matchups. I want the best player to be as ineffective or as underutilized as possible. And I'll live with the results off of that. So to your point, I think it's right. Before we talk about what ends up being the, the byproduct of that, the perimeter shooting, you just touched on something there about maybe doing something a little bit different. You know, And I don't want to get too far ahead in terms of going forward, but it's funny because my initi- my immediate thought was, right, maybe you're a little bit better off if Nicholas Claxton – is the guy that's helping and ranging over because we know how athletic and versatile he is. And maybe it's a little more DFS, taking that first point of attack defense against Joel Embiid. Things that we'll talk about before game two, but whether you want to tweak the execution, I still do agree with the strategy. And then we get to the other side of this, which was the Philadelphia 76ers having 13 three-point makes in the first half, highest in franchise history in a playoff game for them. They were absolutely in fuego from beyond the arc. And it's it's easy to see that happen in real time and go, man, what a disaster. But that is that is the lesser of two evils that you're willing to live with.
1: Yeah, look, you can't double someone on one team and not expect other things to, to happen. I, like, it just doesn't work that way. It's six players going to. If you're going, yeah, if you're going to double and some teams are good enough to like kind of just stay connected and defense enough to to kind of make up for it. The Nets, I don't think are that crew, Um, but the, in terms of like, if you're going to commit to double teaming a certain player, there are going to be other things that happen. And sometimes those other things are going to make it look like you don't know what you're doing on defense. Like, so for instance, a double team on Embiid is going to leave open shooters and that's just what you're going to have to live with those shooters are going to be like pj tucker from the corner or yeah. tobias harris above the break or like whatever you know it's not going to be hardened as much because they're not going to sacrifice the double like no hardens guys never helping but like mm-hmm. the other the you know in terms of the rest of the guys that's that's what's going to happen like Embiid's going to make those reads sometimes and sometimes he's not like he made a lot of pretty good reads in this game right the other thing that's going to happen is that you are taking another defender away from being able to rebound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so this is why you get, you're going to allow possibly second chance points from the air team, because you are taking one guy out of the, out of the, out of the paint to to deal with getting rebounds off misses. I, those are things that can happen. I, like I, I want to just caution people against saying like, you know they got to be rebound better. Some of this is a byproduct of the initial strategy. A lot of this is the byproduct of the initial strategy. The initial strategy yes. is to stop this one guy. Look, these are NBA teams. Other things, your other, they're going to have other advantages. As to whether or not you think that advantages are good, the juice is going to be worth the squeeze. Does that make sense? Like I, oh, I don't know. It's, I, I, they might try something else. Maybe you try not doubling and next game and see what happens. I, I don't think I would go that strategy, but like that, that could be a, a pivot. I, I suppose.
0: Coming up here in a second, we'll we'll talk about the positives for the Brooklyn Nets, Mikhail Bridges, Cam Johnson. Like there are really big, I mean, maybe these are higher level takeaways when we talk about getting the first sample of Mikael Bridges and Cam Johnson on the Brooklyn Nets in these roles for this playoff roster. But just to put a pin in it, and I think we'll we'll flesh this out as we go into game number two. I, I guess the question would become, do you want? Uh, 42-point attempts from Joel Embiid or the volume of three-pointers, right? And that's, I think, what will loom over the Brooklyn Nets between Game 1 and Game 2, the decision they make there. But we dive in on, yes, the positives coming up next.
1: I make myself feel a little better here. I talked about our friends over at Prize Picks. Prize Picks, daily fantasy made easy. All you're doing on Prize Picks is you're making entries and you're going more or less on their player projections. You're not going against other sharks in the water. You're not wrangling with salaries like some of these other DFS sites. It's just you versus whatever prize picks put up. And what I'd say the projections, I'm talking like points, rebounds, assists, blocks, steals, everything for an individual player. You take two to six players. You figure out if they're going to score more or less on those prize picks projections, you can win up to 25 times your money on any entry. Like I said, it's not you competing against other folks. It's just you versus prize picks. Take them up on the challenge, not just NBA, MLB, NHL heading into the playoffs, PGA, all the major events. It's all there for you on prize pick, safe and fast withdrawals. You can make uh, entries in less than 60 seconds over 30 states and Canada is where they're operational. Download the Prize app or go to prizepicks.com to sign up and play daily fantasy sports. First time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with a promo code locked on. Don't forget to enter promo code locked on at sign up for an instant deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks is daily fantasy made easy.
0: Okay, so before we dive in on Mikael Bridges' performance, which, quite frankly, was was nothing short of superstar level in this Game 1 matchup with Philadelphia, I will just put a pin in, living with the results of that strategy and maybe why the Brooklyn Nets should go right back to the well on Joel Embiid, like, everything being equal, you have, take Melton out 2 of 7 from beyond the arc. As I said at the top, Philadelphia finishes 21 of 43, almost 49% from the field. James Harden was 7 of 13 from beyond the arc. Like, let's just live in the world, man. We know once upon a time, James Harden could only brick three-pointers in the playoffs. He is one of eight from the field without his three-point shooting. Now, you don't just take it off the box score, but like we we, we know what James Harden is. We know this team is collectively. They have a lot of great three-point shooters. But if you're going to tell me that James Harden is going to go out and hit over 50% from beyond the arc with consistency going forward in this series— all right, listen, man, so be it, like whatever the results are going to be. But the world where the Nets did leave a lot of open perimeter shooters for Philadelphia, yes, Tobias Harris knocked down his three attempts. You mentioned P.J. Tucker, two of five. You know, Maxi was four of four from deep. Okay, those went down. But the volume came from James Harden. And, and argue you can make the case that, like, you can play the exact same strategy out, and Harden is
1: far less likely than more likely to repeat that type of volume from deep. Yeah, look, the the Sixers ended up doing what I wanted the Nets to do was bomb 43s. I, I, that's what I kind of was hoping the Brooklyn would come out here and do. We'll talk about some of the problem areas for the Nets on offense in a minute. But, yeah, they shot really efficiently from three. The Sixers did. A lot of them were very good looks, so I can't take it too much into the luck category on that mm-hmm. one. Like, But I also don't think there's an expectation that your opponent's going to shoot 50% from three on 43 attempts for the rest of the series. So I think there is um, some earth to drop down to uh on that number nets were efficient themselves from three but their volume wasn't just anywhere close to what is needed in a matchup like this um yeah so i do think there's a a world where that levels that does kind of regress to its own individual mean Mm -hmm. to some degree but i the the looks are always going to be decent like that's in this in this strategy these are going to be pretty good looks these aren't going to be like pull up you know off the dribble threes like these are going to be clean looks if you're bringing help defense a lot so we can get into what the, what the nets did but um i i do think there's room for the sixers to fall in that category for sure yeah
0: now if we took a look over to the brooklyn nets here we know mikhail bridges comes over in the trade for kevin durant and the phoenix suns we also get cam johnson in there as well mikhail bridges has played to a near 30 point scorer per game since coming over to brooklyn the big question was you know, can he be that guy when it matters most? And speaking to that bombing of threes for Brooklyn, first and foremost, Mikhail Bridges is that guy. 34 minutes, 12 of 18, two of four from deep, got to the line four times, knocked those down, the rebounds, oh, the whole game is there. 30-point performance from him. Before we even talk about the mid-range game and how effective he was in it, I mean, that's really where, where we start and stop, I think. He was so effective in that area that maybe it mitigated four or five more three-point attempts you could have seen from him. And I take that as an overwhelming positive because he was able to go into the teeth of the defense, whether it was on switches, et cetera, and rise up and knock down those shots with consistently consistency. This was an absolute box-checking performance from him in terms of can he be a centerpiece for your franchise going forward? 1,000% yes
1: yeah, for sure. that was one of our big questions going into this was like, would his game translate to a playoff uh, atmosphere? We definitely thought it would. So there was no this was this was just like a nice box to check in terms of we felt like this was going to happen. And he came out. And was about as efficient as you can get it's really nice for him his game is sort of predicated on a way to attack this philly d which is if you're going to attack the mb the joel mb drop coverage you if you can play in the mid-range you will have some excess success here and mikhail is very 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 good in the mid-range and he had that on display he had a lot of mid-range shots rising up and over joel he was able to beat the uh initial defender they're not going to switch that ever so it's like it's going to be and be in the drop we'll talk about why that gave nets problems for basically everyone else but the <laughs> for bridges his game yeah like most of the times in the current NBA you want your shots to be threes or dunks basically like threes layups dunks like that's really the math problem like you don't want to live too many too many other places there is a gr- select group of players that are allowed to live with those in those areas because they're super efficient. Kevin Durant is the 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 guy that created in the lab to do this, right? <laughs> Kyrie's Kyrie was really really good too, uh, or amazing. I shouldn't even say really good. Um, Mikhail has this in his bag, and that is why you gave up you give up some of those three point looks for good mid range shots yeah. when they're just basically going to be open and automatic. It was a nice box checking moment for him, I think, to be like, "Hey," and that was, it was correct what they did. It was like, "Hey, this is how you attack this drop coverage. He's the one the guy that can do it, yes. and one guy on on the Nets team that can do it. Um, Maybe like Cam Thomas could do it or something. I don't know, but like he's not going to play the um I the the other thing with oh, I was going to say one more thing about McHale. Maybe I need you to oh yeah sorry this is my last piece about McHale. You know you have arrived at the next level when the other team has decided that they're going to blitz you. Like we yeah. just talked about, Joe, we just talked about Joel Embiid, um, and how he's gonna create, the, he's gonna um, dictate double teams. They were double teaming Mikhail like for a lot of the second half because they're yeah. like, this is the only chance the Nets have to score. They were right, <laughs> right? Like that was <laughs> right. correct. That was correct to do. But you know, you kind of arrived at the next level when another team has changed their defensive approach to deal with just you specifically, and the Sixers definitely did that with Mikhail Bridges.
0: And going forward in this series will be interesting to watch because, again, you know, we talk about the two way player that Mikhail is. He can very much take on the James Harden assignment and do that with ease. We saw that in, in, in season when he made his debut uh, against Philadelphia, but also offensively. You know, I said it very early. You and I watched this game together very early on. I was like, oh, okay. So he can go ahead and just take James Harden off the dribble whenever he chooses to, right? Can turn that corner and get downhill at the basket. And then you mentioned all the switching defense and still being able to do it. The question that we'll look at going forward. And probably in our next preview of game two episode is going to be what happens when he starts getting blitzed and how can the Nets adjust to that to make sure they can have success and keep themselves in the game. The other player for me here that I think we'll talk about, I don't think, I know, because we talk about how we're going to cover the team on this show, uh, is going to be Cam Johnson because he was the other big name here. We know the offseason. We know the contract. You could make the case here and we'll discuss it in a moment. How Cam Johnson just had his best performance as a Brooklyn net in the game when it mattered the most, and maybe did check that contract box off as well.
1: Yeah, he's look. Cam Johnson is. Um, we, he's another guy that was going to need to step up. Uh, he played really, really well. I, 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 you know, I don't know. Maybe I wonder if you're a little higher on this performance than I am, but I, that's fine. I, it's it's one of these situations where we we ne- we definitely needed to see like a not one he need to like look like he can hang on the court that happened 100%. Um is he like a complete enough player to play like as a second fiddle in a playoff series? Like I'm not totally sure about that one yet. I don't know if that was what you meant by his is that what you meant like like where you see him on the hierarchy or uh you know if
0: okay if you push me for do I see him as pl- being the number 2 on, on a playoff team? That's probably not where I want him. But I think he ends up being a very a, a borderline elite third player on gotcha. a playoff team when you go inside those stats. So we could break that down a little bit deeper here. But I I will say I, I, was, I am pretty high on this performance from him given the stage and the assignments that he had.
1: Yeah, I'm a little confused about where he landed on the minutes too. I felt like the minutes ended up being a little on the low side. Maybe we can t- – I mean, I know this ended up being a blowout. I, I, I'm going to levy a bunch of complaints here. I think you are too. Um, I, we, we're going to save some of the complaining here um, for probably the, the last part because there's plenty – there was some head-scratching moments – Uh, In this one, for sure, we'll get into some of those in a second. First, going to tell you about our friends over at Built Bar. We've been talking about Built forever now. That's because it's super easy. They have amazing flavors. They have protein bars that are actually good for you, and they actually taste good. And if you've tried, if you've dipped your toes into the uh, protein bar world in the past, you know. That, that is not everyone's op- operating procedure when it comes to flavor. But Built has figured this out. They started with the flavors. They back it up with the stats. They cover these things in 100% real chocolate. They're healthy, and they taste amazing. I don't know how they do it, but they do when you back it up. Uh, 17 grams of protein, just 4 grams of sugar, only 130 calories. You can find Built. At your Walmart, your Sam's Club, you can go to built.com to grab them. They're really available wherever you're doing your shopping or online. Cookies and cream, double chocolate, coconut puffs, just some of the flavors that you're going to get from built. So if you're close to Walmart, you're close to Sam's Club, run in and grab a 13 bar box, hit them up uh, with the brownie batter puff or the churro puff as well. You can thank me later, or you can go to built.com.
0: Okay. So just quickly tying a bow on, on the positives before we get into some of the gripes here um, on Ken Johnson. Like I'll just say, you know, maybe the minutes because he gets off the court a little bit sooner there as things start to get away in the fourth, yeah. only plays 27. You know, when the numbers work, we like to use it minus seven in the plus minus category. Now, his assignments defensively are going to look look a little bit different. Seven of eleven, four of six from beyond the arc. The rebounds are there. There's a couple of times where you know he, he looks a little bit rough around the edges on both ends of the floor. And there's a lot of players you could point to like that. I just think you know he's not in the, he's not a spring chicken. Twenty six, going to be twenty seven years old next year. I just thought that there was never really a time when I looked at Cam Johnson on the court and said, oh boy. And there are guys yeah, that yeah. you can do that with that that matter to this team, right? And the one other player before we 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 go negative here, is Nicholas Claxton. This is where the old box score is not going to tell you the value of a player. Just five points, 30 minutes, two of four. He more than held his own in the Joel Embiid assignment. We know the versatility he has defensively. He's picking up Maxi out on the perimeter. It stretches in this game, too. I think that he did everything you wanted him to do in this game. The problem is the Brooklyn Nets don't have another guy that can do some level of that to alleviate it for Nicholas Claxton. And obviously, I will say, as we start to go that way, the lack of offensive repertoire for Nicholas Claxton does become a little more glaring uh, in this game. It's not really a knock on him, it's just a reality.
1: Yeah. Uh, I agree with that assessment of Claxton. I think that this is always, again, this is going to be a really, really tough thing for him. Uh, Embiid's the best center in the at worst, the second best center in the whole league. And some yeah. would just say he's the best. He probably just is the best. Like, he's and he and Jokic are so different that it's like it's like weird to even compare them. They just they kill you in two different, totally different ways. So um Comparative wise, whatever, he's just like about as difficult of an assignment as you can really ever have. The Nets had really, really some major problems here. Uh, Dinwiddie had a rough game, and he's probably uh, he might just have a rough series. Like this game, this series is not built for him. This is not actually anti Spencer Dinwiddie as much as it's like pro how Philly defends and like what Dinwiddie does really well does not lie, it lines up perfectly for Philly to defend it because he's really good at getting to the rim. He's really good at um sort of turning the corner on slower defenders. He's uh, pretty good in the step back. Like he can't do any of that and it looks pretty bad. Like he yeah. cuz you can't get to the rim against this Philly team. Like Embiid is there in that drop and he's going to wipe away everything. And yeah. the Nets this is why time and again basically anyone that went to the rim for the Nets today was swallowed completely whole. And Dinwiddie needs that part of his game. And you could see it kind of getting to him because what ended up happening was not only could he not finish, but then like the two-man lob game on the pick and dive, I mean, that looked even worse. <laughs> like that was as bad as you will ever see two-man games with lobs on rim running. I actually don't know if I've ever seen it worse. It was so bad. Um Really from everyone on the Nets, but Dinwiddie really struggled in this one. And it's a shame He's been the net's second best player here for months now. Um, so it's 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 just this one this matchup is really, really gonna be tough for what he wants to do.
0: And, and you and I talked about this coming into this game that it needed to be Mikael Bridges and Spencer Dinwiddie being your two highest point scorers, being the guys that were carrying the load and then everyone else playing off of him. You know, Cam Johnson having 18 points is excellent and his performance is great. But what you need to have above him and behind Mikhail is a Spencer Dinwey 20-point performance, 20 20 plus point performance in a game like this. You know, it's funny. When we were when we were watching it in real time, you know, I said, and how many assists does he even have? He had six, and he only ended up finishing with seven. To your point, and it goes really on both ends of the floor here. Offensively, it just never seemed like he could quite figure out what the execution was supposed to be. We talked a little bit. We're, we won't get into him much here. Dorian Finney-Smith, who had all the opportunities because that's what Philadelphia was going to give up, and he just seemed confused about, what do I need to be doing here? But when DFS does that, you go, but that's the hierarchy. You know, you should be confused a little bit because you're never asked to do it normally. For Spencer Dinwiddie, it just seemed like he got caught in between. Should I be attacking? Well, I can't attack because the paint's going to be clogged. Okay, lean into facilitator mode, the perimeter shots. You know, I know that when they go in, it's good, but almost every one of his five attempts from beyond the arc were chuckers, you know, in, in the purest sense of Spencer Dinwiddie form. And then defensively, it's a really difficult matchup. We talked about it against James Harden when you get caught into those switches because you don't have that 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 length. That, and this is Doug Norrie's words telling me in game. That length of a McHale Bridges to be able to recover when Harden wants to step back away from you. And you're not quite quick enough if he wants to turn the corner on you. When Harden is getting around the corner on you, that's when you're really between a rock and a hard place. So it was. And, and all of that to say, it's not a, a, an indictment on Spencer Dinwiddie. It's an indictment on Spencer Dinwiddie in this series and this matchup specifically. And it's going to be hard for him to, I think, figure that out shy of, I, I, you, you tell me, him doing significantly more facilitating. And allowing everyone else is going to need to pick up the scoring load here because I think that's actually his most effective attribute in this game and in this series. And I don't know if that's going to be, I know it's not going to be enough. Frankly, I know it's not going to be enough. He needs to be a 2010 guy and he may only be able to be a 15 assist 12 point guy.
1: Yeah, yeah. This, like I said, like the you know think about what you see that Spencer did, does really well. He gets to the rim. He wants to draw contact. He wants to get to the line. He always thinks he's fouled. Right. Like these are these are the things, the areas that he's thrived in. Right. And there are going to be certain matchups where that does really work well for him, um, getting into switches on smaller or or excuse me, bigger defenders that he can cook a little bit, but where he can't. Like once once Embiid drops, like it's kind of over for him. And he doesn't have a good pull-up game. Like he doesn't operate mid-range very well. Like he doesn't, he's not a really good off-the-dribble shooter um, for a facilitator. And that's kind of like what you need to be, uh, to be able to really attack the teeth of this this Philly defense. I do wonder if the next couple games we'll see like a little bit more like earlier Mikhail actions like just because it, like or just like that two-man game trying to work a little bit better because they just know they have to live in the mid-range a little more with, with bridges I mean it's hard to imagine his usage going higher um but it I I do think it's like this is a problematic thing because I while I don't think the Philly point of attack defense is all that good it's it's like that doesn't matter for Dinwiddie like he yeah. doesn't want to do that. Like, you know, that's not like that's not a situation he wants to attack over and over again. So this will be what's interesting to watch. I, I, I do wonder what's going to kind of happen w- with that. Um, but it was it was this was rough. It, it was a, it was a rough one to watch. The timing for basically everything he was doing was was way, way off.
0: And by the way, here just point of order because we're we're coming in on the weekend here. We'll be back in for post game on Monday night for game number two. So as far as additional adjustments, keep an eye on us over on Twitter at Adam Armbrecht at Doug Norrie because that's where we're going to be talking about a lot of these types of things. What do you go to next from here? Because we won't have a full preview episode ahead of that. So just a little bit of showkeeping there. Let's close out on the big gripe. You can say you want to play Joe Harris. You can say you want to play Seth Curry. What you can't do is say you want to play Seth Curry and Joe Harris together. Um, We we both have been on this hill. Seth Curry did everything he could to make us eat crow because he had a good performance, but that hasn't been the gripe. It's that you can't put these guys on the court together. They did get away from it, but it was borderline criminal that Jock Vaughn was willing to put them out there together to start at a certain point in this game when they come off the bench together. You and I were both equally shocked. And then they went to timeout and came back and still had them both on the court together, which really
1: sent Doug off the edge. Yeah. I don't think this is like why they lost, but it sure didn't help him win. Uh, Like I, and I know the shots went in and I, and I, that actually for me doesn't, depending on what is actually happening doesn't matter all that much to me. I I think process wise, I'm just, I I just don't understand why these are the rotations. Like why a Spencer, why Joe Harris and Seth Curry is your first rotation is you think is going to like press Philly into like any real clear disadvantage. I like both. They try to zone at one point with the two of them. It was like, it was like you and I playing zone. I, I don't know why they did it. Um yeah. These guys are just too, it's too easy to pick on both of them, defense uh, defense wise. The The Sixers are never taking, they always have at least one elite ball handler on the court in Harden and Maxi, right? They have a good secondary guy in Melton. Like they have a lot of ways to kill you. Like having these guys on the court together in Curry and Harris does not make any sense to me. The numbers back it up. They have 400 plus minutes without Durant this year. It's been a total train wreck. Like it's like minus 10, 10 net rating when you take. Like basically any combination of like one other superstar off the court with these guys, it's, it's bad. And it doesn't pass the eye test either. Like, I just don't, I I, I don't understand this as a strategy. They've continued to go to this um for most of the second half of the season. When Curry has been healthy, there's been no point where it's looked very good unless these guys are shooting out of their minds from three. And even that is barely keeping their head above water. Like I, yeah. it's, it's only, the, it's only the, it's only the insane, 80% from three they Seth Curry shot that they weren't higher negatives. Right. And yeah. so I know you just want to say, well, he made the shots. Yeah, I get it. But like, they were still huge negatives, even when the shots were going in. Like, this is a really, really big problem. They have to adjust this. I don't totally get it. I don't know. We'll see. They made a little I... few other minor adjustments. Like Dorian Finney Smith started on Harden in the second half. Like there were little things that kind of went, mm-hmm. uh, that went a little different here. But um, in general, I, I just can't, I can't watch these lineups anymore. I, I just don't get them.
0: Yeah. And it's funny to me, and I'm, I'm only going to say this because again, because we won't be in before the next matchup. Like if you told me that you wanted to play Yuta Watanabe and Edmund Sumner instead of Joe Harris and Seth Curry. I can buy into it, not because either one of those players is perfect, but because there's some other chance that they can do these other things. Both these players, Seth Curry and Joe Harris, have very clear limitations. And frankly, when you look at the box score, unless Seth Curry is going to do what he did, which is go four or five from the field and two or three from deep in 16 minutes and give you 10-point performance, unless he's going to add in what Royce O'Neill does when he's on the court, and I'm not saying Royce was perfect, six assists, unless, unless you're going to tell me that Seth Curry can start doing a bit of that when he's on the floor... Than everything else that you listed there, the obvious negatives we know about his game, specifically on the defensive end. I, I just I, I can't get behind it. And I know we can separate them and play one or the other, but neither one of them is going to be the answer for you. And I, it, it's just funny, at some point here, 30 year old veterans that maybe don't have a big future on this team, it gets me back to this place of for the feather in your cap of making the playoffs, there might be this delineation between expectations of what you'll do when you get there and honoring some of these veterans. That might be the only explanation I can give. And I would, I would call it probably still inexcusable.
1: Yeah. I think that that might be part of it. I'm, I'm not sure exactly. I, there, I, can't find total explanations for that. So um, that's just a, it's a complaint and we'll see what they're able to do. We will hang out here for a little bit in YouTube. If you're live in YouTube, much appreciate everyone that jumped in here on a Saturday afternoon with some of the off timing uh, with the game. Much appreciated. If you have some questions you want us to address, hit up at locked on nets right there in chat. We'll try to bring some to answer and uh, we'll get to those. And if you're not following YouTube, because you're listening on the podcast I'm not to tell you, you got to go follow at locked on nets on YouTube. I don't think
0: Joe Lewis could take the punches today fighting in this era. That's Larry Holmes talking about
1: boxing. Can the Brooklyn Nets recover from that first blow? All right, we'll be back again tomorrow for some people or next week for others. We'll talk to more Brooklyn Nets basketball.